Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we begin the story of the Nephilim, those terrible creatures who inhabited Malifaux before humanity arrived through the breach. But there are also creatures who have lived in Malifaux even longer than the Nephilim. And there are creatures who are part Nephilim, part human. You will meet them all in part one of The House Folds, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breach Sub Broadcast is brought to you by Vera's Divination on Old Falkirk Street in Malifaux. Vera will gaze into the future and reveal your destiny for a nominal fee. Just bring along the blood, bone or viscera of an animal, or if you're feeling flush, a human. Live sacrifices with greater prophetic accuracy are also available at extra charge. Folds by Michael Wallace. Through the howling wind and blinding snow, Nakima caught the scent of fresh blood. She circled, fighting the storm to discern the scent's origin, and descended until she caught sight of an ice capped cliff path overlooking a sheer drop into the inky blackness. Discarded bones, bloody and gnawed upon, littered the snow. She flapped her leathery wings and flew on, struggling against the cold winds until she caught sight of movement below. More than two dozen hulking shapes marched single file down the path. Nakima flew ahead and landed on a spot where the path widened and flattened out. To her left was the blue-black stone of the far peaks, caked with ice. To her right was a sheer cliff that fell away into a deep glacial canyon. While she waited, she tucked her wings, chilly and numb from the flight, into her heavy bearskin cloak. While her wings warmed up, she unstrapped her greatsword Lorelei from its bindings and rested it, sheathed across her shoulder. She heard the crunch of heavy footfalls in the deep snow long before she saw the first figure appear from the darkness. The beast was taller than her, and almost twice as wide. Its flesh was leathery and blue in colour, and lines of runes flickered over its skin like living parchment. Shards of crystal jutted from its back, though Nakima could not tell if they were some kind of crude jewellery or natural growths. It had a broad head, with little in the way of a neck, round jowls around a moor of needle-like teeth, and a single sickly eye above its pug-like nose. It wore nothing more than a loincloth of torn hide, but the spear it hefted looked like a withered tree wreathed in crystals. The creature halted when it spotted her, and let out a warning growl to its kin that echoed down the line and brought their procession to a halt. Nikima waited just long enough for the Cyclopes to begin murmuring among themselves to call out to them, I am Nikima, queen of the Nephilim. I seek the prophet, the one they call Euripides. Come forward. Her words echoed across the mountains to her left, 
punctuated by the cracking and rumbling of distant snow. The lead cyclops snorted, puffing a thick cloud of hot breath into the air. Big noise, Black Blood. You make ice fall. I can fly, Nakima pointed out. You cannot. Bring your prophet forward, or I'll dig him out once the rest of you have been buried. A chuffing of surprised, angry grunts was their reply. A few of the one-eyed creatures grumbled encouragement to their leader and pushed at his crystal-laden back. Waving them aside, the lead cyclops lurched forward, swinging his heavy club threateningly in front of him. Big threat, Black Blood, for small woman. Speak small or be broken. Nakima tilted her head and arched her eyebrows. She tightened her grip on Lorelei's hilt and felt the blade's dormant hunger begin to stir. When she spoke, her voice was just as loud as before. I'd like to see you try. The Cyclops let out a rumbling growl. Not the most threatening war cry, but even this simple creature seemed to respect the dangers of an avalanche and charged. For its size and weight, it made remarkable speed through the heavy snow, which kicked up behind it in a plume, obscuring the rest of its kind. Nikima waited until the beast was almost upon her, drew Lorelei just slowly enough to pique the blade's attention, and then kicked a wad of ice and rock at the Cyclops, catching it just above the eye. The Cyclops let out a yelp of panic, clenched its eyes shut, and stumbled in its charge. Nikima borrowed a human convention, and casually looked down at her fingers, as if more interested in the state of her claws than her opponent. Blinded by a little snow, how did your kind ever survive this place? The Cyclops evidently found the gesture just as infuriating as Nakima had the first time her sister had done it to her. Rubbing its face clean, the Cyclops pulled itself to its feet and snarled. Thick drool oozed from between its teeth as it charged forward again, this time keeping one hand up to protect its eye, while the other hand held its spear out like a jouster's lance. Nakima waited until the last minute before fainting left. As the Cyclops shifted that direction, she took advantage of the opening and leapt forward, her cloak falling away from her shoulders. She flapped her wings, kicking up a plume of powdery snow as she launched herself to the right. As the spearhead passed her, she swung Lorelei two-handed at the beast's legs with all her might. Lorelei was sharp enough to cleave three humans in half with a single swing, Nakima's personal best to date, but as it struck the cyclops' shin, she heard the sound of cracking ice and then the blade bounced backward, knocking Nakima off balance. The cyclops quickly recovered and backhanded her, and she was forced to drop Lorelei in order to bring her forearms up and block the attack. The blow reverberated through her body, and the next thing Nakima knew, she was sprawled out in the snow, nearly a dozen feet away, her arms numb and her head ringing from the tip of her horns to the base of her neck. If she had been a second slower, the beast would have snapped her neck, or even shattered her skull. Fighting the urge to simply black out, Nakima rolled onto her hands and feet and shook her wings clean of snow. All right, she muttered, spitting blackened blood into the snow from a torn lip. That's how you survived. The cyclops chuffed laughter. It knelt down and plucked Lorelei from the snow. You dropped your fiddly knife, black blood. The creature hefted Lorelei and hurled it at Nakima's chest. Nakima threw herself backward and willed the blade into her hands, catching it midair. With a twitch of her wings, she put herself into a spin and hurled the hungry blade back at the cyclops with all of her might. It would have gored lesser beasts, 
but it succeeded only in tearing a shallow gash across the Cyclops' stomach. The wound was enough to distract the Cyclops, though. It stumbled backward, and Akima launched herself forward, kicking up snow as she crashed into its chest. The impact sent it tumbling over onto its back, and with a flick of her wrist, Nakima recalled Lorelei back to her hand. A single beat of her wings propelled her up onto the Cyclops' heaving breast, and without hesitation, she rammed the blade downward through its widened eye. The Cyclops screamed a pig-like squeal that rippled through the canyon. The Cyclopes that had, up until that point, been quietly enjoying the fight, let out grunts of alarm as their single eyes strayed upwards towards the ice-covered mountain peaks. Enough of this, came a rumbling voice that cut through the grunts. End him before you bury us all. Nakima put all her weight on Lorelei, and was rewarded with the crack of bone and the sensation of her blade puncturing the frozen earth beneath the creature's head. The Cyclops ceased making all sound and went limp. Nakima planted her hoof on its jaw and yanked Lorelei free, spraying blood through the air. A particularly large form shouldered its way to the front. Unlike the others, which appeared to be old and rugged, this monster was verging upon ancient. Its skin was torn and cracked, and the crystals on its back were smoothed from time and weather. A long, frozen beard hung from its chin. An old cloth bandage wrapped around one of its eyes, while the other blazed red with an intensity that hinted at a sharp mind. Strips of fabric hid heavy belts loaded down with an assortment of objects, bones, daggers, pouches, and other implements she'd seen carried by her own shamans. Nakima hopped down from the corpse and strode through the snow toward the Elder Prophet. Shall I assume that you are the prophet I seek? The Elder stood up straight, his height easily dwarfing his kin. I am Euripides. Speak, Nephilim Queen and be gone. My patience is thin, and this canyon is not safe. Nakima flicked the blood from her blade. I seek knowledge, prophet. I did not come to make war. Euripides snorted, sending walls of snow dancing through the air. You have a very Nephilim way of asking for assistance. Nakima grinned. I will take that as a compliment. I travelled to your throne but found it empty. Now here you are, descending down from your mountain. Had I been told this instead of seeing it with my own eyes, I would not have believed it. She paused and allowed her gaze to stray to the dozens of cyclopes lined up behind their chieftain. How long has it been since your kind has seen the lowlands? Many years, Euripides replied. Centuries before your mother's reign, and then longer still. Nakima sheathed her blade and crossed her arms over her chest. And now you descend to answer Titania's call. Euripides motioned to the south with a massive hand. The beckoning. She calls. We answer. This is the pact we swore long before your kind blighted Malifaux, Black Blood. Nakima scowled. Malifaux was ours, Cyclops. Euripides' stony lips pulled back into a thin grin. For now. Your mother ruled for an age, your sister a century. How long do you think your crown will endure, little one? Nikima felt her teeth grinding and forced herself to stop. Enough. We are set upon by invaders from another world, 
and they are actively working to free the tyrants from their prisons. Plague, December, Cherufe. Her hand tightened around Lorelei's hilt. Titania bids you to peer into the future to see how best to destroy them once and for all. Eurybides' eye narrowed as he peered more closely at Nakima. When your sister came to me a century ago, she demanded to know the destiny of the humans that had moved into the city. She threatened to tear down this very mountain and batter me to death with every stone until I told her what she wished to know. Now her sister stands before me, the messenger for the great betrayer of our people, he snorted. Your mother would be disappointed. Nakima's lips pulled back in a snarl. Are you not marching south to throw your support behind Titania? Do you not believe that she is the only one capable of saving our world from the tyrants? What I believe is irrelevant, Euripides murmured, his tone resigned. Knowledge is a burden, black blood. The future is carved into the stars and engraved upon our bones. If you survive long enough to reach your mother's age, perhaps you will come to glimpse the strings that guide your actions. He turned his head southward, his gaze growing distant. We join Titania, because that is what we do. We have no choice. Nikima lowered her arms as uncertainty crept into her mind. There is always a choice, she replied. But even to her own ears, there was hesitation in her voice. Her thoughts flitted to the swamp hag, the former human, and how often her sister had turned to the woman for guidance and knowledge. The idea that her actions might be predetermined was an uncomfortable thought, and she was unable to keep her expression from betraying her feelings. As she worked through the concept of predeterminism, Euripides stepped past her and plucked up his dead kin. He handled the corpse like a doll, turning it over in his hands before plunging his thumbs into its gut. He tore the smaller cyclops apart like he was splitting a rotten pear, allowing its steaming blood and entrails to spill out onto the ice and snow. With cracking knees, the elder giant bent low to read the portents as the blood cooled. The scent of fresh blood pulled Nakima out of her thoughts, and she watched Euripides curiously as he peered at the blood. She had grown up among the black blood shamans of her people, and had seen them perform countless divinations, but this was different. There were no chants of ancient words or strange invocations, just spilled blood and the wisdom to interpret its meaning. Despite her better wishes, she found herself intrigued. I see darkness, Euripides finally intoned. A hungering darkness that reaches out from a jar of sweet nectar, filling the weak with brilliant light that only serves to deepen the shadows around them. The darkness transforms the city into a glowing sun that casts all of Malifaux in deep shadow. Until finally a winged queen steps forward, the champion of her people. Nikima stared down at the blood, trying to catch even a glimpse of his vision. Does she defeat the darkened sun? Euripides dropped the corpse to the ground and reached forward, wrapping his large hand around the smaller cyclops' head. With a loud crack, it saw the head free of its body and used a finger to scoop out its brains from its ruined eye socket. Then, eye narrowed. He peered into the empty skull for what felt like an eternity. No, 
he finally intoned. The shadows consumed the winged queen, devouring her own darkness and filling her with light. I see. A shiver that had nothing to do with the cold passed down Nakima's spine. Any creature capable of enslaving Titania was a powerful opponent. But already some of the pieces were coming together in her mind. She shook her head and unfurled her wings to take flight. I shall bring word of your prophecy and your approach back to Titania. When she learns of the darkness that threatens her... No, Euripides interrupted, his gaze swinging back to Nakima. This is not her future black blood. It is yours. The color drained from Nakima's face, and she took an involuntary step backward. She opened her mouth as if to say something, but then her features set themselves into a determined scowl. Her wings flared open, and in the blink of an eye she was gone, nothing more than a speck in the swirling snow. Euripides' rough lips pulled back into a thin smile as he watched her retreat. Then he turned back to his people and raised the skull of the fallen Cyclops high above his head. Hydrak has fallen, he grumbled, his powerful voice carrying to the back of the group despite his soft words. Let his kin step forward and feed. The ranks of the Cyclopes parted to allow two females to step forward, their eyes watery as they approached the remains of their kin. Euripides and the others turned their backs on the sight allowing them privacy as they feasted. Take the shot. Angel Eyes ignored the command. She clenched her living eye shut and focused through the mechanical one strapped to her empty right eye socket. Through it, she saw the wagon hurrying through the Badlands, making its way south behind a team of four horses. The driver cracked his whip over their heads, refusing to slow, though the horses were all panting and their haunches were foaming with sweat. Another hour to Ridley at that speed, she guessed. The sun's coming up, Angel. Take the shot. Angel exhaled slowly. The crosshairs leveled on the driver. He was cursing and spitting at the horses, his face reddened up like a veiny beat. She wanted to watch that face explode in her scope, but instead she aimed at the tired horse at the front of the wagon. Rest. She quietly intoned, and squeezed the trigger. The rifle went off, and a second later the horse simply collapsed, a bullet hole in its skull just behind the eye. The other horses tangled with it, and the wagon flipped over them. The driver was hurled through the air while the wagon smashed onto its roof in a cloud of dust and splintered wood. Then the sun peeked over the horizon. The glare made Angel Eyes wince away from the scope. Edwin laughed. The squat Englishman was more a shaved weasel than a bulldog, his leathery skin dirty from the road, and his otherwise smooth scalp broken by a pair of lopsided horns that jutted from his forehead. Inhuman red eyes winked at her from under a heavy brow. Nice shooting, bird. Angel Eyes sighed and took her finger off the trigger. Make sure no one gets away. Too right, Edwin agreed. He lurched forward, scrambling on his hands and knees. He descended from the hilltop, kicking up dust as he went. Someone from within the wagon was crawling out, and Edwin fell on the man with his claws, ripping and tearing at his duster and the flesh of his back. Angel picked herself up and strapped her rifle to her shoulder, 
taking her time going down the hill to join Edwin. He yanked someone from the wagon who was either unconscious or dead, and ripped his throat open just to be sure. While he wriggled into the wagon itself, Angel drew her pistol and checked on the wagon driver. His arm was snapped above the elbow, but he was half-conscious, coughing blood from lips that were almost white. She put her boot on his arm and leaned on it, causing him to scream, his beady eyes focusing on hers. "'Thanks for the stones,' she said. Jamed the gun at his forehead and pulled the trigger. "'Edwin!' "'Yeah?' called the muffled voice from inside the wagon. "'Don't rip him up too much. It's supposed to look like a robbery, not Neverborn.' "'I know.' Just grabbing some trinkets. While he robbed the dead, Angel went to each horse, checking them for injuries. Two were only bruised, though clearly panicked. The other was wounded to the point of absolute stillness, the whites of its eyes showing as it watched her. Easy, she cooed. Shh. She unstrapped the healthy horses, untangling them from the reins of leather and metal. She took out their bits and let them sprint away to freedom. Good girls, she said. Then she knelt by the last one. She patted its neck gently, keeping the pistol behind her back while she cocked the hammer. She continued to pet it until it closed its eyes. She put the gun to its head and pulled the trigger. Edwin emerged from the wagon, carrying belts of ammo, spare pistols, and a small chest locked with a heavy pneumatic seal. You done yet? he asked. Angel Eyes stood up, wiped her living eye, and went to join him. That box got a key. Not with this wagon, Edwin said. You think the arcanists would be that dumb? I know an expensive lock when I see one, Angel replied. I'd hate to come all this way to just watch you blow your own fingers off getting into it. Appreciate the faith you've got in me, Edwin chuckled. He pulled a pair of long metal pins from his belt and inserted them into the lock. This one's an oldie. The Union hasn't seen many innovations in locks since old Ramsey got tossed in irons. I could open it in my sleep. Then do it without talking, Angel said. She kept her distance from him while he worked, her eyes flicking between horizons. She didn't think anyone would stumble upon them. But being this close to Ridley and robbing an arcanist wagon, the sky could be full of magicians in seconds if she... A dark speck in the sky drew her mechanicalized vision. Work fast, Ed. Just a second. Let me concentrate. Angel drew her rifle and looked down the scope. She could just make out a pair of dark wings spread out behind the speck, gliding on the chilly morning air. Is it Arcanists? Edwin asked. No, Angel said. One of Nakima's messengers. Oh, well, that's just peachy, Edwin said. Keep picking. I'll handle it. She walked back up the hill, putting herself out of Edwin's earshot and letting the towering Nephilim spot her, though she suspected it already knew her location. It swooped down and landed hard, heavy enough for her to feel it through the sandy soil at her feet. The mature Nephilim was all muscle covered with horns, claws, and teeth. It didn't look happy to be sent on an errand. Nakima commands your presence, it said in a voice that was even deeper than she expected. She has a mission for me? The Nephilim glared at her. Your commanded half-breed. 
Angel wanted to roll her eyes, but she nodded instead. Understood. The Nephilim took flight again. Angel watched as it headed west, wondering if she could put a bullet between its buttocks. Edwin came up the hill carrying an armload of the chest's contents. Soulstones, already glowing from the deaths of the wagon's occupants. Got it, Edwin said. Good, Angel said. Get your horse. We're leaving. What did he want? You know the queen. First she wastes your time, then she tells you why. Another explosion rang out, deafeningly close. Puente clapped his hands over his ears, but it did nothing to silence the ringing. A half second later he was pelted by debris, but it was only when he wiped his face and it came back bloody that he realized the debris wasn't dirt. Though his thoughts were frozen, instinct managed to spur him to motion, and Puente began to crawl away, his face pointed south toward the Latigo Ranch that was hours away. His rational mind, buried deep under panic and fear, tried to tell him that he would never make it even if he ran, but his dominant compulsion told him to find safety, and the ranch had been the only place he'd ever felt safe in all of Malifaux. A dry chuckle drifted over the sound of crackling fire. Puente glanced over his shoulder to see a tall figure stride out of the smoke, dressed in a long duster coat and a wide-brimmed hat. At first, Puente hoped it was one of the Ortegas come to help, but he met the creature's glowing red eyes and felt his bowels loosen like a wet sponge. Tuco Ortega grinned down at the kid, casually reloading his sword-off shotgun as he followed Puente. The young Pistolero's crawl turned into a half-pleading crab walk. Please, Puente cried. The air was thick with smoke. He couldn't think of anything more to say, so he repeated himself between choking coughs. Please, please. Tuco kicked the kid onto his back. They ain't gonna kill you. You crawl back home and tell Petita that little cousin Tuco is coming to skin her alive. You do that, I let you live, comprende? Tuco? Puente scrambled onto his feet, pulling up his pants to keep the mess he'd made from spilling everywhere. I'll go, I'll go. The kid even made it a few feet before Tuco shot him in the back. On second thought, I'll just tell her myself. He looked around reloading again as he searched for another Ortega laphound to gun down. When none presented themselves, he scowled and tucked the shotgun in his belt. Well, now I'm just bored. Oh, honey, your problem is you kill too fast. A woman easily as tall and muscular as a mature Nephilim strolled through the smoke. Becoming a blood wretch had warped her more than it had others. A pair of curling horns jutted from her head. Most of her hair had fallen out, and her skin had thickened almost to hide. Though her coveralls were scavenged from an abnormally large man, so that they were barely tall enough to fit her, she carried herself like a lady, taking dainty hip-swaying steps with both hands on her waist. No one invited you, Dai, Tuko muttered. You act as though an invitation would bring me to this unsightly mess. Her voice was deeper than a lifelong cigar smoker. I was sent by Lady Nakima to fetch you. Fetch me? Tuko asked. What a job? Or to kill me? Because I've got better things to do. Like wander off over yonder and get gunned down by your angry kin? Dai asked. Come on now, best be gone before the Ortegas see the smoke. Tuko snarled. 
Let him come. I'm sick of chasing these packs of pups around, daring that puta to show her face. Dai sighed. Alone, with no ammo. That'd be a short tussle. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming, dammit. You're too kind, Dai said. She offered her arm. Tuco glared at her and hooked his arm around hers and tipped his hat lower over his face. There, you do have manners, Di nearly giggled. You tell anyone and you get two loads of rock salt. Nakima swooped low, close enough to touch the tips of the trees. The northern knotwoods had some of the tallest this side of the bayou, with trunks that could be as thick as two wagons. The foliage was so dense in places that the sun never touched the forest floor. In others, the rocky hilly terrain was narrow and treacherous. Creatures limited to travel on the ground had a distinct disadvantage, and it was one of the reasons the human loggers had given the north a wide berth. The other, of course, was Nakima's Nephilim. While her kind were nomadic and restless by nature, they defended a few important sacred sites and gathering circles. When the tribes had been divided by Lilith's usurpation of the throne, Nakima had fortified her followers in the blood pits. It was to this place that Nakima returned. She flew over the canopy to a small natural clearing, the center of which boasted a gaping hole rimmed with two great slabs of curving stone like the beak of a hawk. The stink of blood both fresh and spoiled, wafted from the hole. But the predators of the knotwoods gave it a wide berth, for surrounding the pit were dozens of hide yurts lit by small torches. Even in the dark, she could make out more than a hundred Nephilim of various shapes and sizes gathering at the pit. The larger of the beaks boasted a throne fashioned from countless human bones bound together with leather. She swooped down, landing nimbly upon her perch. Her claws found purchasing grooves she had worn into the armrests. She almost smiled as she let herself relax into position. This was her place. A slender Lilitu, clad in a dress of dyed leather, approached the throne. The messengers have been sent as instructed, my queen. Your servants approach the camp even now. Nakima smiled. Excellent, Kestra. And what of the raids on the human settlement? Kestra bowed. See for yourself, my queen. The gathered crowd below parted, revealing a dozen or so humans penned in by Nikima's black-blood shamans. They were herded onto the smaller stones that surrounded the pit, overlooking the abyss below. The hunting is rich in the lands once held by your sister, Kestra purred. Nikima growled. Chasing the swamp hag's portents while the vermin infested her land almost to an epidemic. You were weak, sister. One of the shamans held up a dagger, and Nakima gestured a confirmation. A crying, demoralized human was brought to the edge of the pit. The shaman brought the blade up and then down, spilling blood from the man's chest. As fresh ichor spilled into the pit, a chorus of shrieks and hisses came up from below. In ages past, the Nephilim were content to leave their offspring to the whims of the forest. The weak would perish, while the strong would thrive and undergo their metamorphosis into stronger, 
more intelligent forms. But Nakima desired an army, and such breeding practices were inefficient. Now the Teratots were deposited in the blood pits, where they waited to be fed. Those that were strongest took the most, and when they underwent the change, they would climb or fly out of the pit to join their kin. Those that were weak were destroyed by their kin, or disappeared into the myriad tunnels under the pits, never to return. It mattered little either way. The shaman tossed a human's body into the pit, letting the remaining humans listen to the feasting as their turn approached. Their faces paled, their dwindling courage snuffed out like candles. The fear would make their blood savory. Many will earn their claws tonight, Nakima said. From behind Kester came her brother, Kure. The red-skinned Lilu stood just behind his Lelitu in compliant silence. My queen, Angel Eyes and Tuco Ortega have arrived. Excellent, Nakima said. Bring them forward. Kester turned and scowled at Kure. He nervously bowed and darted away. You have him trained, Nakima mused. Kester sighed. He is hopeless. A human screamed as she was being sacrificed. Her voice was cut off by the shaman's blade. From the crowd of Nephilim emerged Angel and Tuco. Their similarities were purely physical. Hybrids in blood, clad in long coats and smelling of gunpowder and human foulness. The other Nephilim growled, gnashed their teeth or leered menacingly at the two, while both put on a show of ignoring them. Angel knelt before Nikima's throne, while Tuco merely bobbed his head. Nakima suspected she would want to kill him someday for his disrespect, but such things were for another day. Half-bloods, Nakima said, sitting up straight. I have a mission for you both. First, however, Angel. Angel produced a satchel from her belt. She hefted it to show the weight and then handed it to Kestra, who opened it to reveal the soul stones within. The Arcanists will not use the same smuggling methods again. Nukima nodded passively, her mind clearly elsewhere. Do you know the man named Jacob Lynch? Yes, Angel said. Tuco shrugged. Go to the city and kill him. Angel paused. You want us to kill Jacob Lynch? Yes, Nukima said. Why is not your concern and how is not mine? but do it quickly. Tuco cleared his throat. Are you crazed? Angel stood up. Lynch has a lot of connections, including muscle and magic from some very secretive parties. Not all of them human. An assassination I can do, but setting up a kill like that could take weeks of scouting, let alone pulling him from that honeypot will take. That's why Tuco will go with you, Nikima interrupted and you may take your pick of the more experienced hybrids. Two. More than that will draw attention. I'd rather take a dozen bulls than this madman, Angel said. All heart and no sight, Tuco snapped. Why would I drag you along? I could take a nap and beat Lynch to death with the pillow before you'd line up a shot. You want to kick in the door of a casino? Be my guest, Angel said. The bouncer's lynch keeps will break every bone in that body and save that empty skull for last. Nikima smashed her fist into an armrest. 
Enough. I gave you a command. If you can't perform this simple task, perhaps it's time I question your usefulness. Both kept their teeth together and swallowed whatever else they had to say. Nikima relaxed into her throne again. You may go, she said, turning to watch the continuing sacrifice. Angel and Tuco exchanged glances, turned, and left, side by side. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of The House Folds.